0: Bibles with you, please turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be in chapter 5 this evening, as we're almost reaching the end of this grand letter to the Galatians. We'll be looking at verses 7 to 12 of chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 to 12, and for any note-takers out there, the title of my sermon this evening is A Couple Reminders on Discipleship a couple reminders on discipleship. And once you find your place in your Bibles, as everyone is already, just stand up for the public reading of Scripture. And just one thing to say really quick, because I know like a couple reminders on discipleship, John, I probably know this stuff already. You, mostly you probably do, but I'm only going to preface this, that you know although these are going to be things that you probably heard throughout your Christian walk, it is never a bad thing to hear these reminders, because as one Puritan writer once said, Um, one of the biggest problems when it comes to the people of God is that we have the unfortunate tendency to forget about God's promises. And so whether you have heard of these reminders or these are reminders for you indeed, either way, this is going to be an opportunity for you to grow in Christ-like holiness. And so a couple reminders on discipleship. Galatians 5, 7 to 12, this is the word of God. This is what the apostle Paul writes to the Galatians here in chapter 5, starting in verse 7. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. These are this is the word of God. Let's go before him before we begin in prayer. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, just for just for this day, God, it's, it's, it is a gift. It is a grace that we're able to gather as the family of God again this Lord's day. Lord, the thing that brings us together, Lord, the thing that brings commonality between all of us, Lord, is that we all are united by our faith in you, King Jesus. And because you so love the world, Father, that you sent your eternally begotten Son in the power of the Spirit to die on the cross for our sins, who was buried and rose again, Lord, we have a living hope. No matter how broken this world may be, we have a living hope that no matter how difficult it is for us as Christians, Lord, we know as Pastor Steve was preaching on this morning that this is not our home. Lord, we are just pilgrims passing through, followers of you, King Jesus, in this present evil age ultimately walking towards our eternal dwelling in the city of heaven, in that celestial city, oh God, to be in your presence in the new heavens and the new earth. That is what we long for. But until then, Lord, we are called to live for you. And Lord, there is no better place of how to flourish in this world um, by reading your words of wisdom, your words of truth that tell us, Lord, how to do so. And it's only made possible by following you, Lord Jesus, as Lord and Savior. So Lord, help us, God, just to find encouragement through these reminders of discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower? Review and if there's any unbelievers here, Lord, um, or anyone listening online who doesn't know you, Lord, I just pray that they will just meet the, 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 the they will just meet you, Lord, face to face. And that, Lord, they will just be pricked in their conscience of their rebellion against you. And that, God, they will come to faith in you, Lord. At least a rock will be left in their shoe. And that, God, one more soul will be entered into the kingdom. And just for everyone else, that they will be strengthened by their inner faith. And for myself, Lord, that, God, I'll just not mess up your word in any way. But, Lord, your word will go to your people. It will feed them. It will satisfy them. It will refresh them. But ultimately, Lord, you will get glory all the more because of it. God, we love you. We thank you. And we just lift these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be, be to church. For those who know me best, you know I enjoy watching movies. Not only are they easier for me to commit watching on like a, say, a TV series with multiple seasons like The Office, it's just really hard for me to get into, to be that committed to something like that, but also, movies also function as good litmus tests, tests of what is the prevailing worldview and our culture, and yet... One movie I look forward to watching in theaters this November is a film titled Bonhoeffer. Now, if you recognize that last name, you might realize, well, it's going to be a film about the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the reason I'm so excited about this film coming out is that the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is really a modern-day parable on the Christian life today. But that begs the question, well, who is Bonhoeffer? And if you're unaware of his story, he becomes one of Germany's most prominent theologians in the 1930s. He lived some time ago. However, he lives during the reign of the Third Reich, under the totalitarian regime of Adolf Hitler. Where many professing Christians in this time follow Hitler as his false messiah to think he's going to save their country, Bonhoeffer immediately recognizes this spiritual idolatry. He recognizes the foolishness of following such a man who is really an antichrist. And as a result, Bonhoeffer is one of the first theologians in Germany to speak against Hitler's Nazism, to speak against Hitler's anti-Semitism. And eventually, his voice would be canceled, alongside his ability to teach, to preach, and to write publicly, something that we're seeing today in our culture. And unfortunately, he's inevitably arrested and imprisoned by the Gestapo, that is the German sacred police, in April of 1943. And yet, that doesn't stop him from doing God's work. Bonhoeffer, like a modern day Paul, he still continues to preach the gospel while in prison, both to his fellow inmates and to the soldiers guarding him. And it's while in prison that he writes some of the most influential works on Christian discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ in all of history? Unfortunately, as all good things, his life comes to an end in April of 1945, where Bonhoeffer is executed by the Nazis. By hanging. He dies a traitor of Nazi Germany. Ultimately, he dies a martyr for Christ. And so, why is Bonhoeffer then a modern day parable of the Christian life today? Why does it matter for you and me? Well, for Bonhoeffer, he's unashamed in living out his faith in Christ under the demonic rule of a government bent against God. And if you think about it, if you look around America today in our culture, you realize that we are living in similar, tumultuous times, or at least we're getting there, right? We live in a culture that's growing more secular in every sphere of society, whether it's from the entertainment industry in Hollywood, the development of, say, technology in Silicon Valley, from economics off Wall Street, or just the secularization in public schools and college campuses, we live in a time. We live in a time where the culture is growing, not just more secular, not just more... Anti-God, but more pagan in its expressions of everyday life. A time where people could care less about living for the God of the Bible because they can just worship themselves as gods. And the cultural pressure, a lot of it all, to follow Christ will only grow. It's, it, it's growing right now as we speak, and this is going to force us as Christians to ask a serious question: How far are you and I willing to go to follow Christ? How far are we willing to go? And if you honestly struggle to ask that question, Jesus makes it easy for us. He gives us the answer in the Gospel of Luke. He says famously that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, you got to be willing to give it all for Christ, even your very own life. Only then can you be fully committed in following Jesus. Now, that's a hard saying, right, from the God-man himself. But the good news is, is that Paul the Apostle actually speaks on this topic tonight. This is going to be the central theme of the passage that we're going to be looking at in Galatians. And so as you will see in our text tonight, the point is to never stop your pursuit in following Jesus. That's the point we're going to see tonight. Never stop your pursuit in following Jesus. But that begs the question, how, do we, how can we do that exactly? Especially when the cost of discipleship is not only high, but continually it grows all the more difficult. And it's with this in mind that Paul is going to share two reminders with all of us loved ones. He's going to share two reminders on the Christian life, how you must never stop your pursuit in following Jesus. What are those reminders? The first reminder is this. God is the one who ultimately keeps you from stumbling. That's the first reminder, and we'll see that in verses 7 to 10. The second reminder is this, that the stumbling block of the gospel will lead to persecution. And we'll see that at the end of tonight in verses 11 to 12. It is these two reminders that Paul shows us why you are to never stop in your pursuit and following Jesus. So with all that in mind, let's begin with the first reminder, which again is this. God is the one who ultimately keeps you from stumbling. God is the one who ultimately keeps you from stumbling. If you've been tracking with me as I preach through Galatians, you know that Paul's concern ultimately focuses on one question. He doesn't ask this question, but everything he's talking about is is grounded in this one question. How should you live out the gospel? How do you live out the gospel in your life as as a Christian? And the significance of of this question manifests itself in this letter to the Galatians around a debate. A debate between Paul and the gospel he preaches from Christ, and that of a false gospel, fake news from a group of Jewish Christians called Judaizers. And just to make it clear and simple, you can break down both of their messages in three parts each. Let's start with the Apostle Paul, the gospel that he speaks, that is from Christ. What are his three parts of his gospel? Well, step number one, you believe in Christ by faith alone. That's something that he's been emphasizing in Galatians. You you believe in Christ by faith alone. Not by works, not by your performance, but by, but by faith in Christ alone. That's the first step. Second, you are then justified. Or as Paul explained to us, that is, you're declared right before God. Again, not based on what you have done to save yourself, but what Christ has done for you on the cross. That is sufficient in itself. And this leads to the third step of Paul's gospel. You are now able to live for God. You are now able to flourish under his lordship by keeping his law out of your love for him. That's Paul's gospel. But what were the Judaizers teaching at this time? And notice the difference here. For them, the first step is this. You believe in Christ by faith. It's kind of similar. But yet, the second step is, and do your best to live for God by keeping his law. And that leads to the third step that you are then justified, that is declared right before God. Did you notice that slight difference in the order? Again, there's some agreement between Paul and the Judaizers. Both agree that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Both agree that Jesus is Lord and Savior and that he alone is necessary for salvation. Yet, the difference is that the Judaizers assume you need to add something to your faith in Jesus. They believe that you need to do your best to keep God's law to be truly saved. In other words, you need to perform good works. You need to be a good person, just pull up your bootstraps and live for God. Only then can you be saved. Or in this context, they were saying to these Galatian Christians, you need to get circumcised and you need to observe all these Jewish feasts. In other words, they were teaching that these Galatians need to be Jewish to be saved. And now, I know that sounds very ethnocentric. Like, how can these guys just elevate their own culture more, thinking that they're better than everyone else? How can he do that? And I actually talk about why some of the first Jewish Christians, like these Judaizers, thought this way in some of my first sermons. And it actually kind of makes sense. It's still wrong, and Paul gives the right answer here, but it makes sense. And if you're curious to why they thought that way, I, I encourage you to go check out my first sermons as I've been preaching through Galatians. Nonetheless, I bring that all up because Paul's ultimate concern here in Galatians is that the Galatian Christians who are not Jews, they are turning to a different gospel. They are turning to the false gospel of the Judaizers of fake news that cannot save them. As Paul writes earlier in the letter, he says th- these words in Galatians 1, 6 to 9, if you want to turn there in the letter. He says that I am astonished. I am shocked that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you, that is the Judaizers, who want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he continues, but even if we or an angel from heaven to preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be a curse. In other words, let that person be an anathema, or in modern day lingo, let that person go to hell. What they're doing is not only damning your souls with the fake news, but also damning their own souls as well. And Paul says in verse 9, as we have said before, for the sake of emphasis, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And what's interesting, interesting about this passage that we need to keep in mind as we move on is that this passage, Galatians 1 6 9, and hopefully I don't make this overly complicated as it should, it's actually functioning as an inclusio with our passage tonight. You got Galatians 1 6 9 on one hand. And you got Galatians 5, 7 to 12, our passage tonight, this serves as an inclusio. And if you never heard of that term before, trust me, it's not that complicated. An inclusio is, 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 is something that writers would utilize to kind of make a point. Think of, think of like, say if you have a bookshelf at home, and say if you have bookends, right? This is what these two passages are doing here in Galatians. You got Galatians 1, 6 to 9, that's one bookend, and you got our passage tonight, that's the other bookend, the, these serve as, as guidelines to help us understand what is Paul really saying in between them, right? In Galatians 1, 6 and 9, Paul brings up the problem that the Galatians, they're believing in, in, in a fake gospel. They are deceived. And he then brings this up again in our text tonight. But in between That's where all the action happens. This is where Paul is defending his gospel, quoting scripture after scripture, defending his authority, doing all these amazing things that we have seen so far. He defends his gospel, why Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And also he's deconstructing that fake news that the Judaizers were teaching as well. This And so so I mention that because now we are arriving at, at, at the end of what Paul has been arguing that you're only saved in Christ alone. You're not saved through any other religion. You're not saved by your own good works. Doesn't matter if it makes you feel good in the inside. Doesn't, doesn't matter if it makes you feel like it's your authentic self. There's only one way that you can find eternal life and that is in the, in the man Christ Jesus. And so as we close with this inclusive tonight we're going to see next time that paul is going to start talking about how do you actually live up the gospel and that's when we start getting into that famous passage right the fruit of the spirit but until we get there paul is going to give us a couple key reminders as he finishes off this point in his letter to the galatians he's going to give us a couple reminders on how again you are never to stop your pursuit and following jesus and so with all this in mind then look at the first part of galatians 5 7 Paul writes these words as he finishes off this section in his letter. He says to the Galatians, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And so this is actually a good summary of the current situation here in Galatians. Notice what Paul was saying here. If you're to look closely and, 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 and especially in a lot of the context, Paul is not necessarily condemning the Galatians here. Instead, he's rightfully upset you can even say he is sad over the spiritual condition of the Galatians. Why? Well, because these are people that he first shared the gospel to. He brought them to faith. He brought them to Christ. And now to come back and see that they're, now they're turning away from all that breaks his heart. He is sad to see not only fellow Christians be deceived by lies, but to see people that he brought to faith himself to be to, to be to following a lie that's going to lead to their damnation. That's why he spends so much time just explaining the gospel. It's like, man, Paul, we know what the gospel is. But again, he's like, no, we must remember the gospel because the gospel itself is not something that we just embrace when we first believe and forget about. No, we got to be reminding ourselves of the gospel each and every single day because if we don't, we can start believing in the lie that oh i need to, i need to stay myself it's based on my performance and stuff like that or we could be like the Galatians we hear something in the culture or pressures get heightened and boom we walk away from Christ all together and so again paul's like like yes you may know the gospel but you'll be surprised how easily we are we are quick to forget it and and that leads us to what does paul mean here when he says you were running well what does paul mean by that exactly and and what's interesting about, this, about that first sentence is that this is actually an illustration. It's a very popular illustration that Paul likes to utilize throughout his letters. In other words, when Paul says you were running most to the Galatians, this is actually a metaphor of the Christian life. Because in Paul's day, running, this was connected to the track and field events of, of, um, of the Greek Roman world. You know, we have our Olympics today. That, that began in Paul's original context maybe a couple hundred years before Paul existed. But still, again, when Paul's talking about running, he's referring to the track and all the athletes running around, racing each other and stuff like that. And this is something that he utilizes to talk about the Christian life. For example, consider what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 26. He writes this, that, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize that is first place? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Kind of like it was like, it was like, a, like a leafy crown. But then he says, but we and an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. Again, he is talking to Christians here. And what he's getting at is like, think about, the, about, the, about the, the Olympic runners who discipline their bodies just to run well. They got the fastest times in the world. And this is all that they train for. They do all that just to get a, a leafy crown that, you know, the next day it's probably going to die, right? It doesn't last. And yet, he says, but for us as Christians, we're kind of like them. We are running a race in a sense, but not a physical race that just goes around the track a couple times. But this is our life. It is a continual race. It is a marathon from the moment you first believe all the way to the end that you that you receive an, an imperishable inheritance and an imperishable prize and what he's getting at is that until you receive the prize we all long for and that's heaven that's to be with Jesus himself that's why he says, I do not run aimlessly because I know what I'm heading towards. Not living for this world, but living for the age to come until I receive the prize of eternal life by being with Jesus forevermore. And it's this hope that he has in Christ in the future that he's able to say this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-8. to This is what he tells to Timothy right before he's going to be martyred. He's going to get his head chopped off by Emperor Nero. This is what he says, keeping his running imagery in mind. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, he says, I am ready to being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I pray that we will do that as well, loved ones. He says that, Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. In other words, this idea of running, it, 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 it's the metaphor for the Christian walk that every single day we are to continually be moving towards our prize to the end of the race until we run through the finish line, you can put it that way, right? And that is when we reach heaven, when we're with Christ, You know, and, and, and our prize will be that there will be no more sin. There will be no more death but we will be with Christ forevermore. And just to kind of showcase just really the beautiful encouragement of this reality. Um, I was running the other day. I, I tend to run a couple of days throughout the week personally. And one day I was running, it was a couple weeks ago. And I don't know what was up with me. I was just really tired that day. I'm like, man, I don't want to keep running anymore. I'm tired, right? It sucks, but I'm just gonna keep going. I'm just gonna keep pushing myself. And then, uh, then, I, then, I, then like where I was at the point I wanted to give up I see my house in the distance like, oh I'm so close, and then I start getting a little faster, faster I'm like, oh, if I get home, I can get my Gatorade, I can get, catch my breath, I can take a shower, rest up and stuff like that, right? And so it was by thinking about the end of, of, of my ray, of my run that encouraged me to keep going and going and going. Well, I share that right because the ultimate prize for the Christian is again Christ himself, no matter how difficult. How our lives as, may be here as Christians, whether it be t- spiritual temptations, maybe physical trials financially, relationships with other people, or just trying to be faithful Christians in a culture that is totally against God, we can persevere through all of those trials, loved ones. Because you know why? It's not dependent upon our strength, because it is, shoot, I would have given up the race a long time ago. But it's not dependent upon our strength. It's the strength that God gives us that keeps us going each and every single day. And that's why I always encourage all of you loved ones as pastors, even all the pastors here, that we must look to the end. That is what grounds not only our living hope in Jesus, but it's by thinking about the end to come, the life that we will have in Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth that encourages even right now to be faithful and living for Jesus and all that we do. Because if I'm honest, sometimes life under the sun sucks. It's hard. I know sometimes you don't want to go to work. I know sometimes people make you angry, but it's by keeping your, your mind on the prize that we're able to not only live faithfully now, but also to make it to the end in glory. I'm always encouraged by what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verses one to two. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is, all the Christians who have, who have finished the race before us, he writes, let us also lay every weight and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look into Jesus, the prize, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is what we have to look forward to, love, and that is what grounds our hope to run this race with endurance. That's why the Christian life is best described as a journey, right? Life's a journey, but for the Christian life, it's definitely a journey, a pilgrimage from this world now to the next in eternity. That's what Paul means by the illustration. And, and although I probably could have kept that shorter, it's something very important to keep, us, to keep in mind as we live as followers of Christ in this broken world. But that all begs a question, right? Why are the Galatians not running like this anymore? At some point in time, they were, but Paul writes in the past tense, that they were running like this. What happened? Well, Paul gives a reason at the end of Galatians 5 7. So look at verse 7 again, where Paul writes, Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And what's interesting about that word hindered is that it actually connects to Paul's running analogy about the Christian life in the previous verse. In context, This word hindered expresses the idea of, say, one racer tripping up another racer on the track by cutting in front of them and slowing down their progress. And I'm not sure if you ever watch the Olympics and you see a bunch of runners fall sometimes, they cut each other off. I used to do track and field in middle school. I've fallen once. It is not a pleasant experience. It hurts. You get scratches. You bleed. Yeah, maybe at the moment, like, oh, your adrenaline's kicking up so you don't feel it. But after, I'm like, man, my body hurts. Because when you trip and fall on that hard track, it is, it is not a pleasant feeling. Well, how does this relate to the Galatians? Well, Paul was saying that the, these Judaizers, with their false gospel, they tripped up the Galatians. They tripped them up so bad that they are swerving away from the truth of the gospel that Christ is the only way to salvation and now they're coming to this false gospel like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but you gotta do your own work as well, right? That's blasphemous. That is so foolish. As, Gala- as, as Paul says in Galatians 3.1, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has put a spell on you? Who has deceived you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. He's referring to, the, to, to, to that po- po- point in time where Paul was with them personally. It's like, Galatians, I was with you. I shared the gospel with you. I, I, I demonstrated the love of Christ and the good news of what does it mean for you to be forgiven of your sins in Jesus. How can you go back now to a way of living that cannot save The fact that these Judaizers are adding to the gospel is the very thing that trips up the Galatians from obeying the truth. And now that begs another question. Well, what does he mean by truth here? And if you just keep in mind the context of what Paul is getting at here in Galatians, every time when Paul mentions the truth, he always has in mind here that of the gospel. He uses it twice in Galatians chapter 2, if you want to go back and check that out. It's a phrase that Paul alludes to summarize the idea of his gospel, That again, you're only saved by your faith in Christ alone. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. And as I'm going to share in a little bit, we don't want it. Because we love our sin more than God. And yet, this is what Paul means of of the truth, from obeying the truth, of living out what does it mean to be a follower of Christ. The Galatians were walking in light of it um, after Paul preaches them the gospel. But then once these pesky Judaizers came, they tripped them up, and now they're and now they're on the process of apostatizing Jesus. And this for anyone here who's just, who may be thinking, like John, what's the point of all this? Like, wh- what does it matter? Like, just, just let the Galatians do their own thing, right? Like, why is Paul making this such a big deal? Well, when it comes to following Christ, what I can say, and I can and I can say this from personal experience, because I know that's something that our culture values is personal experience, personal stories, is that following Christ, there's nothing more beautiful and there's nothing more satisfying than following Jesus. And I'll just share my part of my testimony that I didn't grow up in a Christian household. My parents raised me up with a Judeo-Christian ethic. Um, we, We knew of God's existence, but we didn't go to church. I didn't read my Bible. I knew some key stories here and there, but I didn't really, really understood what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to follow Christ? And why was that so much better than, say, following you know, any sort of philosopher or world religion out there besides Christ? Why is Christ so different? And it was only until after I came to Christ, I heard the gospel, then you know, um, faithful brothers started to, to teach me the word, that I started to realize that every single thing that we long for in this life identity. That's something that our culture longs for, right? Community. That's something that our culture longs for, right? Love, pleasure, satisfaction, life, joy, all these different things our, our culture longs for and yet never seems to be able to grasp them because there's only one person that you can only find them in, and that's in Jesus, of course, he takes care of your greatest need by dying on the cross for our sins, but it's by believing in Jesus and following him and, and 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 living for him that because Christ is these things in himself that we're called to live for Jesus, therefore he gives us an identity as, as adopted sons and daughters, that when we believe in Jesus, we have fellowship with him and his family, a community, since God himself is love, beauty, um, joy, all these things, it is... Everything that our culture longs for, they can only be found in Jesus. That's why following Christ, although it's not the easy road, because it's not, and I'll get to that point in a little bit, and yet there's nothing more satisfying than living for Jesus. Because at the end of the day, if you don't follow Christ, I'm sorry, you will go to hell. There is only one way to be saved from our sins, and that is through the man, Christ Jesus. It's the most exclusive religion out there. Indeed, it is, because truth is exclusive. Only Christ is the way. But what, I, but, but what I like to share is that it's also the most inclusive um, offer out there because this is open to anyone from all the nations if you just deny yourself, repent of your sins, and place your faith in King Jesus and follow him. That's the beauty of following Christ. And Paul wants the Galatians to not abandon that good news. He does not want them to abandon, um, you know, living for Jesus. And it's because of that he emphasizes his point. He emphasizes his point here by making a contrast in the next verse. And so look at your Bibles in Galatians 5 Paul writes here that this persuasion is not from him who calls you. And so now Paul explains that the Galatians, of course, they're being deceived by the Judaizers. And then he contrasts this with the statement that this persuasion is not from the one who calls you. In other words, who is that one? Well, contextually, it's none other than God. It's none other than the God who calls people to follow him, who calls people to salvation in him. And, and, and that's, that's exactly what Paul gets at as he begins the letter, right? That the Galatians were turning away from the gospel, turning away from the one who calls them. It's the same person, it's God. And this persuasion here what's interesting, this is the only time it appears in, this, in all of the New Testament. It's kind of, so it's kind of difficult, but ultimately, this persuasion is referring to the Judaizers' false gospel, to their teaching. What Paul's getting at is that whatever the Judaizers are saying, it's not from God. I don't care if the Judaizers saying like no, this like this is this is God's message, nonsense. Because because their false gospel is not something that God commissioned Paul to preach. This is not the gospel that Christ came to herald to all the nations. Instead, this is coming from the Judaizers themselves. This is man-made. Now, that verb calling is interesting. That verb for calling the Galatians, it does not indicate when God particularly called them for salvation it doesn't give us a time period when that happened of course in scripture we know that God elects all believers before the foundation of the world Ephesians 1 Ephesians 1 is very clear on that yet what Paul is just getting at here in this passage is that it emphasizes that when God calls someone when God calls someone to salvation to follow him it's very different from what the Judaizers are saying and so how does God call a person How does God call a person to salvation? And kind of as I alluded to before, we all know God exists. Creation reveals that to us. And yet, in our heart of hearts, we do not want to follow God, not because we can't, because we're spiritually dead in our sins, as Ephesians 2 would say, right, in other passages in scripture, but second, and I appreciate Pastor Steve saying this this morning, we all love something, ultimately. And because we're sinners, we don't love the one we were originally made to live for, and that's God, Instead, because of our wicked desires, because of our um, twisting of affections, we love all the things that God has given us more than the one who's given them to us. It's, it's very wicked. It's very twisted. Kind of what Paul says to the Romans that, you know, all of humanity has exchanged the truth of God for a lie and what? Worship everything in creation and not the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so when it comes to God calling us, it's not that, you know, oh, I'm going to follow God one day. Um, I, I, I think I need him to say, no, we can't, nor do we want to. Instead, it is, it is a grace. It's a gift. Not that God has to, but that he chooses to. Why? Because he ultimately gave his son Jesus for you because he ultimately loves you. This is at the essence of what Paul is getting at to the Galatians. In Galatians 2.20, which is really the theme verse that summarizes Paul's argument, it's a beautiful passage. He says this about how God calls a person. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh that is this world, I live. And notice what he says. He says, I live not by my good works, not by my strength, not by my power, not by the, philosophy, the, the world philosophies and the world religions. No, I live by faith in the Son of God, in Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. When God calls a person to salvation, he calls them because in eternity past, he elected him, and how, and how does he achieve that? He sends his eternally begotten son, Jesus, right, out of his great love for us while we were still his enemies, when we were still in sin. Christ dies for his people out of his great love for you, and as a result, he, by the Spirit, he draws you close to him, gives you a new heart, you believe, and as a result, you are no longer an enemy of God. Your status changes, and as Paul says, boom, no longer an enemy, you become an adopted son, an adopted daughter who inherits the promises of eternal life. That's exactly what Jesus gets at, right? Earlier when I mentioned that when, when you know, if anyone wants to follow Jesus, you gotta deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Christ, that's the cost of discipleship. Or if I may quote Bonhoeffer himself, he famously says this about discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Die to self, that you no longer are the Lord of your life. Die to self, that you are no longer going to live for your sinful passions. Doesn't mean we fall short. That's why we repent. But ultimately, when you die to yourself, you live for God. It is no longer you who live a Christ who lives in you. The faith that saved you when you first believed is the exact same faith that empowers you to live for Christ each and every single day, to read the word, to know God more, to grow in your love of him so that that stirs your affections to love God with all of your heart and this world less. And as you love God more, that leads you to love your neighbor more ultimately leading you to preach the gospel and to bring them into the good news of Jesus as well. And yet, even when I say all this, right, because this is all beautiful, it's, it's, it's things that we must keep in mind, yet even when Christ calls you, when God calls you to himself, it's not one of those things that it's we who hang on to God during the process, right? I, I think this is something that we can think at times. I know this is something that I've had to correct myself in my past, in my Christian walk, it's not that when Christ calls us, he forgives us. Now we're adopted into the family. Now it's not a matter of like, oh, i got to hang on to Christ. i gotta, I got to perform such and such good works so that I can find his favor. Nonsense. It's not that we hang on to God, and the moment we screw up, we let go, and God's like, oh, sorry, buddy. It's tough luck for you. No. Instead, it's God that hangs on to you. It's God that hangs on to us, and even when we fall short in sin, he doesn't let go. I always like giving the analogy that imagine you have a parent and a baby. Who's hanging on? I know babies have strong grips, but no matter how strong the baby grips, they're eventually going to let go. They're unable to hang on themselves. Instead, it's the parents that hang on to them. It's exactly how God your Father um, treats you, loved ones, if you believe in him by faith. It's a beautiful reality, especially when we do struggle with sin. Especially when we do go through the trials and the, and the fiery, um, tough times of life. Although we may feel like, oh, I just wanna give up, I wanna let go. Man, I don't wanna run anymore, it's too hard. Just know that if you truly believe in Jesus and you're truly his, he will never let go and, he can never, and you will never stumble and fall. You, he will keep you to the very end. And so loved ones, don't forget about that. Never forget that this is God's love for you. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. You are his adopted child forever. Nothing can separate you from his love towards you. As perhaps the greatest American intellectual, Jonathan Edwards, once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary, right? However, I like to add that there is also no sin that you can do that will contribute to you losing your salvation either. Now, now it doesn't mean that we take it for granted, and I'll get to that later when I preach the gospel, but ultimately, just always just think about that. Just stop and thank God for such a wonderful gift. That God has been so gracious to you in calling you to be his followers. Thank God right now. It's like, wow, Lord, how are you so mindful of us? Thank Him right now. Praise Him in light of it. And if there's anyone here it's like, well, John, I kind of want to know what does it mean to follow Christ? Stay tuned. We will get to there. I will answer that question. But in the meantime, Paul is going to further explain ultimately What happens? What happens when we live out not according to the gospel that God has called us to? Or in the Galatians case, what happens, say, if the Galatians were to um, live out the false gospel of the Judaizers? And this is where Paul further explains the danger of all this in the next verse in Galatians 5.9. Paul writes here that, if, if you look in your Bibles, he says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That might be familiar to some of you because Paul uses this language and this language is used throughout the Bible. It's an illustration. It's actually a cultural proverb that could be either good or bad. It just depends on the context. But often in, in, in Paul's Jewish context, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, it is usually always used as a symbol of corruption, as a symbol of what is bad, what is wrong, what is evil. And that is exactly how Paul is employing it here. And the point is to show that how something small, despite it being bad, how over time it can eventually impact the entire whole. Paul uses this very similarly in 1 Corinthians 5. And I think even just more on on a practical standpoint, like like say like if you if, if you go to work, one person comes in, they just have a bad attitude, and that can quickly affect everyone else to to, to the point where, where you came in that day with a good attitude because of the bad attitude of someone else and how, and how they acted like oh man, now I'm angry now I'm upset, you know that's that's kind of the idea here in this proverb and, and what Paul is getting at here in Galatians is that yeah. The Judaizers, the threat may be small and maybe Paul's just being an alarmist, but ultimately, because what the Judaizers teach is wrong, it's false, it's incorrect, it will eventually leave everyone astray at the churches in Galatians, right? And if, and if the Galatians keep going with it, eventually it's all going to be lost, you know, the <laughs> they're not going to follow Christ anymore and they're just going to be deceived by a false message. That's why Paul is so concerned here. That's why he is writing this letter in the first place so that it doesn't come to that point but, they, that, but that they repent and turn back to the right way of living and embracing the gospel of Jesus. And now I say all that, right? And you might be thinking about yourself like, well, how does that kind of relate to me? And I actually want to connect this idea to something that we can see in our lives as Christians because if we're not careful outside forces, whether it be the culture or false doctrine, it can affect the, it can over time slowly affect your life as a Christian. And where Paul is kind of focused here on doctrine, I'm going to give an example based on ethics. Again, it's not a one-for-one correspondence, but, 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 but the point is the same. Some of you have probably have been following, and if not, this might be a shock to you, Last December, Pope Francis of the Roman Catholic Church released a document titled On the Pastoral Meaning of Blessings. I forgot the Latin title. It's too hard to remember. But what does that mean? Why does he release that? Because ultimately, recently, Pope Francis passed approved that now Roman Catholic priests could bless same-sex unions. Now that he hasn't changed church dogma officially. That's not saying that the Roman Catholic official teachings that now same-sex marriages um, are good. No, it's just no, now we can just bless or affirm maybe same-sex unions. And where people are like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. And some people are like, uh, oh, no, we should be really concerned about it. Just consider what the beginning of this letter says. Because a lot of people are saying that eh, it's not changing anything. Just Pope Francis is being loving towards our... Um, our neighbors who struggle with you know, same-sex, same-sex attractions and stuff like that. But look at what this letter says. It says in the beginning that the value of this document, however, is that it offers a specific and, check this out, an innovative contribution to the pastoral meaning of blessings, permitting and broadening and enrichment of the classical understanding of blessings, which is closely linked to a liturgical perspective. Do you notice that language, innovative, broadening, It sounds like something is being added here, right? And the the danger of this, right, is that it is ambiguous. It is confusing. What is Pope Francis getting at, right? Just like, just speak it out, man. What are you trying to get at? Ultimately, as news media outlets are are saying, this is a slippery slope to the point where the Roman Catholic Church will embrace same-sex marriages. Bottom line. I can guarantee it. If it's not in Pope Francis's pontificate, it will be most likely in the guy who 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 follows after him. And why is that a big deal? It's like John. Like, isn't that just a, like a Roman Catholic thing? Isn't that just a Roman Catholic problem? Well, think about it this way: when the Roman, if the, if the Roman Catholic Church does come to this point and they are on the trajectory after ever, ever since this statement, when the Roman Catholic Church embraces. Everything that the, that the LGBTQ revolution stands for, that, that, that they embrace it, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, all that stuff, right? I'm not sure if you realize, but the number one biggest population of Christianity in the world is Roman Catholicism. And if, the Roman, and if Roman Catholicism embraces same-sex marriages, what does it leave us as Protestants? Because we're not the majority. We are the minority. And I think if we're honest, we definitely feel that more and more in our growing secular culture each and every single day. And the problem of that is going to lead to this big problem until the Roman Catholic Church embraces all this. And eventually our culture grows more secular. And when they look at us as as Christians, as Protestants who, who hold to the Bible as the word of God about marriage and biblical sexuality, they're going to look like, look at those radicals. Those are some fundamentalist crazy people who embrace everything that this book says. They're so outdated. Um, it's going to lead to our persecution. I'm being straight out honest. This is something that many Christian thinkers have been, are already talking about. Albert Moeller. This is something that me and Pastor Steve have talked about. And the reason why I'm bringing this up, because this is happening right now. And yeah, it might start small, but it's eventually going to get big. So much so that it will lead to us being outcasts in our society to the point where we might lose our jaws because, you know, of our, of our, because we're such a small group, to the point that, hey, we can get rid of these guys because they're serving more of a problem than a service to us. And I was just thinking about this because, like, John, you're, you're, speaking, you're speaking out of left field here. This has actually happened in the history of the church. It, at the beginning when the church was born, Christianity was a minority group with Jews particularly eventually it grew and grew to, until the entire roman empire people were coming to faith and stuff like that and it eventually came to the point where the Jews were like hey these christians are not us because the roman emperors thought oh the christians they're just another sect of judaism they're not right but they didn't know that and it came to a point where like Jews were like they're not like us you know don't don't mistake them for us they're not our people and you want to know what that led to that eventually led to the persecution of the christians why? Because it was that Jewish brand that protected them. Because out of all the religions in, that, in, that, in, in the Roman Empire, only the Jews themselves were protected of giving worship to Caesar. That saying that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is God. Every other um, religion, um, every other people who had a different religion besides Judaism, they had to say that each and every single year. And if not, they would be killed. Only the Jews had an exception to that. And as long as the Christians were mistaken as Jews, they, were, they, they didn't have to deal with that. But the moment they were separated, that now they had to say, say Caesar is Lord or you will die. And as Christians, we can't. Only Christ is Lord. And that eventually led to the, the widespread persecution that would, that would mark, you know, um, during the Roman Empire. I bring that up because I think we're seeing something very similar in our time, loved ones. And although I don't think our church is something that we can be led astray by false doctrine because we, we preach the word here, yet I think the temptation for us is that when that time does come, that the cost of discipleship does rise, again, the question stands. How far will you be willing to go to follow Christ? And my exhortation to you, loved ones, is that you must count the cost right now. This is why every time when I preach the gospel to unbelievers, I always try to like like I I, I try to convince them of the beauty of the gospel, but then I really say like, are you sure man? Are you sure? Because life is gonna be hard. It's difficult to live for Jesus. You gotta deny yourself. It's gonna be a lot more harder. You gotta take heed lest we fall. We got to remember the promises of the gospel. This is why I spent so much time that it's God who keeps us. It's God who keeps us to the very end because because if it wasn't for that, we would all fall away. But the fact that God does that, he will keep us to the very end. And that's something that we can hang on to, loved ones. That is where we can find our confidence in. Even when times get difficult, we can remain faithful. I'm confident that many of you will stand in that day because I know that many of you truly follow Christ. And not only that, but Paul has that same confidence as well especially for the Galatians here. And so, as we continue, look at, look at Paul's confidence here in light of this, in your Bibles in Galatians 5.10. Paul writes that, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And so, Paul is confident that the Galatians will repent, and they will return back to the gospel of Jesus. And yet, Paul's confidence is not just because he feels like, eh, I think you guys will, I'm, I'm optimistic. No, it's a little bit more than that. Paul is sure that, no, my confidence is grounded in Christ. That's when he says I have confidence in the Lord. Why? Because Paul Paul truly believes that these Galatians are saved. He believes that they are elected because again, he's the one that first preached the gospel to them. He's the one that planted the church to them. He is sure that they they will embrace what he says and and, 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 and follow that because he believes that, no, these Judaizers are deceiving them. That's why I'm writing this letter again to correct them in that, to help him with that. And of course, if they did fall away, Paul, I know, we we will know Paul would say, well, then they were never Christians in the first place. Paul says that in other parts of the letter, but no, he's confident here. He's confident that they will, that they will follow his advice and also listen to Paul. But in contrast, how about that of the Judaizers? If he's confident that the Galatians will come and turn around, what does he say about the Judaizers? And he says this at the end of verse 10 again. If you look there, loved ones, he says, but the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. In other words, it is going to be the Judaizers. They will bear the penalty. They will be condemned, or as he says earlier in Galatians 1, they will be an anathema. They will be damned to hell, not only for leading these Galatians astray with a false gospel, but for blinding themselves and believing a lie. In other words, if they do not repent, they will receive eternal judgment as well. And, And yet, and also, Paul says at the very end there, right? Whoever he is, what Paul means by that, it's he—he either knows who the he either knows who these Judaizers are and just chooses not to reveal their identity, or he just doesn't know who they are. Either way, he's just emphasizing: if they don't repent, they will be going to hell. They will be bearing the penalty for what they're doing to the Galatians and what they're ultimately doing to themselves. And I know that sounds very judgmental, especially to people in our culture, or maybe anyone here who doesn't, who's not truly convinced of the truth of the Bible. Because again, when it comes to this topic of judgment or hell eternally, that is perhaps one of the most offensive doctrines in our culture. Because people in our culture, and I've I've heard people say this to me on college campuses, "Whoa, a God of love, that's that's nice. That's quite nice. That's, that's, that's tolerant, right? I can, I can follow a God like that. Yeah, a God of justice? A God of wrath? Oh, that, I don't want to follow a God like that. that must, that's just an angry, judgmental deity. Why can't God just forgive? Why? God cannot be both, because if he is, then I refuse to believe in him. That's what people say in our culture, and yet, how in, if there's anyone here who embraces that, or for you loved ones, if you know anyone like that, you got to help people understand that if, they, that if they take this with a grain of salt, and even if they don't, that God is both love and justice. And even before we talk about what love and justice is, how do you even know what love is? How do you even know what justice is? If it's not grounded in God himself, then you don't have the standard to even know what love and justice is at all. And yet, even when we think about justice and love, they're not contradictions with one another. They actually work together. Another illustration I like to use to explain this is think about how a person loves their spouse. Think of how a husband will love their wife. If the husband sees that their wife is being harmed in any way, they will be wrathful because they love them and not despite of it. Right? Makes sense? Likewise, how much more is this true and holy God who loves what is good and right and hate what is evil and wrong? It's true of us as finite sinful creatures. How much is it true with God? As Psalm 145, 17 to 20 says in scripture, it says of, this, of, of God as both, that the Lord is righteous in all of his ways. He's good, faithful in all of his acts. The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. So God's wrath truly is an outpouring of his love. As the standard of goodness, he must judge what is evil. Furthermore, everyone goes to hell because they ultimately choose to rebel against God because we're all lovers. We all love one thing or another, and because we're sinners, we love the things that send us to hell, as Pastor Steve said this morning, right? Rather than the one who made us that leads to heaven. As, as Paul says again in Romans one twenty four, that God delivered them over, sinful humanity, in the desires of their hearts, in this case, sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves I always appreciate this quote from C.S. Lewis. He writes this in The Great Divorce. Not not a perfect book. There's a lot of stuff wrong with it, but I thought this insight was was correct where he says, there's only two kinds of people at the end of the day. Those who say your will be done to God, those who love God, or those to whom God in the end says your will be done. Those who do not love God, but love this world. And Lewis concludes that all that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice and want to be hell, No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy ever misses it. Because if you truly love God, you wouldn't want to be with him in heaven. But for those who go to hell, they go to hell because they love the things that send them to hell. Therefore, God of the Bible is both a God of love and justice. Only the God of the Bible answers sufficiently all the different injustices that we will experience in this world. And that's why for us loved ones... We must remember that it is God who is in control. And because he is in control, he is the one who will ultimately keep you from all sorts of injustices, all sort of brokenness, all sort of evil in this world. That's the first reminder of, of, as, as we continue in our walk as Christ followers. But Paul just gave a brief second reminder on how you're to never stop your pursuit of following Christ. And it's this, and we'll close off with this second point. Paul reminds us as well that the stumbling block of the gospel will lead to persecution. Because the gospel is offensive, the stumbling block of the gospel will lead to persecution. And so look at your Bibles in verse in Galatians chapter 5 verse 11. Paul writes, "If I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted?" In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And so if you look at that first sentence, it's, it's actually it's actually framed as a condition. If this, then this, if the first part is true, then, then why the second part, right? And if you look at the first part, he says, if I still preach circumcision. What does he mean by that? Well, what Paul's ultimately responding to is a rumor that he is still preaching circumcision. But what does he mean by that? Well, there's a couple different options that commentators get, um, give out there. Maybe this is referring to the time before Paul became a Christian, when he was a zealous Pharisee, where he would have brought people to Judaism and circumcised and all that stuff, right? Maybe that's referring to that. Or if you you know your New Testament, like the back of your hand, you know that there's actually a couple times after Paul becomes a Christian that he does circumcise people. One example is in Acts 16.3, where he circumcises Timothy. What's interesting about that, though, is that in Galatians 2.3, in the book that we're going through, you have a guy named Titus. He doesn't circumcise him. Why is that? Why does he circumcise Timothy but chooses not to circumcise Titus? Well, the answer is this. Timothy is a Jew and Titus is not. Why is that a big deal? Because when he circumcised Timothy, he was not doing it so that he could be saved, right? Like what the Judaizers were saying... Rather, he was doing it so that he can join Paul in reaching the Jews with the gospel. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 22-23, this is really his method of doing, of doing ministry. Paul writes, I have become all things to all people. That is, he's just easily adaptable. So that I may become every, so I may be by every possible means, save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel that I may share in the blessings of Christ. That's why he, that's why he circumcises Timothy, but with Titus, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And in the context of Galatians, he doesn't circumcise Titus because, one, he doesn't need to. If he wants to do it for health reasons, you know, all, all freedom to him. But he doesn't do it because he doesn't need it for salvation. And the only reason why I'm even bringing this up, and, and, and I'm thankful for Pastor Steve's example on this, is that, Paul was not preaching circumcision like the Judaizers. He still did it, but doesn't mean that you need to do it for salvation. But the reason why he still did it, because he is not against these Judaizers and expressing their faith in Jesus the Messiah and embracing Jewish traditional practices like circumcision and keeping the feast. That's a cultural thing. That's something that God has given to the Jews. And as Christ followers, Jewish Christians have every freedom to do so in Christ. What Paul has a problem with is when Jewish Christians enforce it upon Jews or Gentiles, Christians, as a way of life necessary for salvation. Perhaps it's that nuance that maybe creates confusion or the rumor, like, oh, Paul is preaching circumcision. No, I do it, but not for the sake of salvation. And as a result, because, because of this, Paul makes the point, I don't preach circumcision, but if I did preach circumcision, hypothetically, why is it that I'm still so being persecuted? I am persecuted by my Jewish brethren. I am hated by them. If I was preaching circumcision like you, Judaizers, necessary for salvation, then why am I persecuted? That's his greatest evidence that he doesn't preach circumcision because he is still persecuted. Because he says at the end of Galatians 5.11, if you you see here, if that was the case, if I supposedly did preach circumcision, then the offense of the cross would be removed. I want to be persecuted because because I won't be an offense to my Jewish brothers. But that then begs a question, why is Paul persecuted? Why is he persecuted for his faith? And why is the gospel that he preaches so offensive to those around him, especially um, his Jewish neighbors? Well, when it comes to the offense of the cross, and in the Greek, it actually translated the stumbling block of the cross, the gospel message itself is something that people just stumble over. It it, it offends them. Um, It's something that seems foolish to them. It doesn't make sense to them. Consider what Paul says at the end of Galatians chapter 6 verses 12 to 15 regarding the Judaizers themselves. He gives us a hint here why the Judaizers and why Jews in general and why really humanity is offended by the gospel. He says in Galatians twelve, oh, sorry, Galatians 6 12 to 15 that those who want to make a good impression in the flesh, the Judaizers, are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, and yet they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision means nothing, but what matters is instead a new creation. What Paul is getting at is that the reason why the gospel offends people because it goes against our hubris, our pride that we need someone for salvation. You're telling me that I need to believe in a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago in obscure backwater of Nazareth who said he was the son of God, died and rose again from the grave? That's what you're calling me to believe in? The Greeks thought it was stupid. They thought it was foolish. The Jews were offended because like, no, the Messiah needs to be a mighty conqueror, but that's the Messiah that God has given us. That is the Messiah who fulfills Holy Scripture. And it's because of that message that the Judaizers can't wrap their head around. How is it that we must believe in this man by faith and faith alone? Well, as Paul makes clear, no one can keep the law. Not even the Judaizers. We have all fallen short of God's glory. And as a result, we deserve nothing but God's eternal damnation. We need Jesus. We need him. And we can only receive the good news of, of the forgiveness of our sins by believing him by faith alone. And it's with, it's with that in mind that Paul gives one last condemnation towards the Judaizers. And it's perhaps one of the most um, explicit <laughs> thing that Paul, could, Paul says in all of his letters. What does Paul say? Look at Galatians 5:12. He says, "I wish those the Judaizers who unsettle you would emasculate themselves." Now, what does Paul mean by that statement? Well, I just want to throw it out there. Paul is being sarcastic here, kind of like how Jesus says, "You know, if 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 you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, chop, take out your eye, or if your right hand causes you to sin, chop off your arm." Jesus is not saying mutilate your body, right? God forbid. But he's speaking hyperbolically to make a point that you better be killing that sin, those else it'll be killing you. Likewise, Paul is speaking um, sarcastically, but also hyperbolically here. Because what Paul's ultimately getting at is like, these Judaizers, they should just make themselves eunuchs. They should just emasculate themselves. Or, and I I found this quite comically, it's probably bad, but the Jerusalem Bible says it this way. (laughs) Tell those who are disturbing you I would like to see see the knife slip. If you don't know what that's getting at, I'm not gonna explain it. But you men, just you know, you know what I mean, right? And the reason why Paul is is, is so explicit, right? Because people are offended by like, dang, Paul, chill out, buddy. It's like, why are you saying that? Well, Paul is well, the reason why Paul is saying that is not because he's really upset, but if the Galatians or the Jews believe that getting circumcised will get them favor with God, it won't do And it's only just mere bodily mutilation. Yeah, you can be circumcised, but it's not going to do you any good. That doesn't save you. Again, he's not against the Jews keeping circumcision to remain a Jew or, say, a Gentile doing it for health reasons. Yet, when either ethnic group does it for salvation, they should just cut everything off because it can't save them regardless. And it's with that in mind, love, that when it comes to looking at this example that we got to be very careful not to fall into the same trap the Galatians were. They thought that their own performance could save them. That, hey, maybe if we listen to these guys, oh, cool, then we'll get favor with God. No, it's not your performance that gets you God's verdict. And not only that, but it's never going to end. When is enough enough? You're always going to be like, i got to do better. i got to do better to make myself feel good or to impress other people. It's never going to work because the only verdict that matters is God's verdict. And as Paul makes clear in Galatians, you can't earn it, nor, 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 nor even if you tried, it would be impossible. Instead, there is only one way that we can receive such a verdict and it's not based on your performance as an individual, it's by believing in what Christ has done for you on the cross. And this is the good news that Paul has been preaching throughout Galatians. Is that all the Judaizers or, or anyone can't save themselves by their own effort, this is the good news that the cross is open to all who are willing to deny themselves, pick up the cross by faith, and follow Jesus. Because the good news of the gospel is this, that we live in a broken world, right? Filled with sin, death, all these bad things, but it it wasn't always like that. All these things stem from the creator God. He made everything perfectly, everything in six days, resting on the seventh. The pinnacle of that creation was humanity, to worship and to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. That's who we were made for. And yet what went wrong? Instead of trusting in God's wisdom, humanity trusted in its own wisdom. Adam and Eve, the first humans, took from the fruit, ate, and the rest is history. Sin and death came into the world, and that's why we experience brokenness. That's why we try to alleviate it, maybe with you know money, trying to get a good job, maybe with relationships, drugs, pornography, you name it, good or bad. We all know something is wrong because we all try to alleviate this brokenness in some way, shape, or form, and yet the problem is that the reason why we experience such brokenness is because we're dead spiritually. There is nothing we can do to not only alleviate that brokenness, but there is nothing that we can do to make itself feel better in light of it, right? And as a result, the Bible says the wages of such death, of such sinning before God, ultimately the standard of right and wrong is eternal death, everlasting damnation and hell. But the goodness of the gospel is that God so loved the world, that he gave his eternally begotten son, so that if you believe in him by faith, that you will not perish in hell for your sins, although you deserve it, I deserve it, we all do, and yet you will have everlasting life. Not because it's your performance that that grants you God's final verdict of forgiven. It's only by Christ's perfect performance on the cross that grants God's final verdict of you as forgiven. Christ lived a perfect life. He was fully God, fully man, born of the Virgin Mary, lived 2,000 years ago, lived under the law, earned perfect righteousness so that when he died on that Roman cross, the most oppressed man in all of history, he died as the suffering servant as Isaiah 53 prophesied. He died on the cross, was buried, and rose again three days later from the grave. Because he is who he says he was. Wasn't a liar, wasn't a lunatic, wasn't even a legend. But he is who he says he was the res- the resurrected Lord. And as a result, if you believe in him by faith, you are forgiven of your sins and you have new life in King Jesus, right? All your sins are placed in the Christ account and Christ dies for it in full and you're forgiven and in exchange, Christ's perfect righteousness is placed into your account so that you don't go to hell for your sins, but the Father looks at you and says, you are forgiven, You are no longer my enemy, but you are forgiven. You are justified, declared right, and you are my adopted child. And now we're on this journey together to become more like Jesus until we either die or Christ returns to make all things new. As Paul says in Galatians 3.13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. there's anyone here who desires that forgiveness, that desires that peace that can only be found in Christ, I tell you, my friend, you must repent of your sins, believe in Christ as Lord and Savior, and follow him as your Lord. It will not be easy. It will be difficult, especially because we live in a world that hates God. But I guarantee you that the prize is worth it because you have Christ himself. And so loved ones, never stop your pursuit in following Jesus. Be encouraged that Christ is, and that God is the one who ultimately keeps you from stumbling away from him in your Christian walk Yet you got to count the cost of discipleship, that the stumbling block of the gospel will lead to persecution, that you can lose your life in following Christ. And so again, I ask this question one more time. How far are you willing to go to follow Christ? For people like Paul and Bonhoeffer, they gave their very lives for him. However, we must never assume that such sacrifices are ever in vain. Before Dietrich Bonhoeffer is led out to prison to be executed, An English officer recounts the last words Bonhoeffer says to him. Bonhoeffer says, This is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. The reason Bonhoeffer could face death with such boldness is because he's confident in his living hope in Jesus. He's confident that since since Jesus died and rose again from the grave, he too will one day rise again in Christ at his return. Christ's resurrection is not just the historical event proving that he is Lord. Christ's resurrection is the ground that his living hope and your living hope is assured in him for the future. And so the journey of the Christian walk is not an easy one. We know that. And if you don't believe it, trust me, it is. But it's the only one that leads to eternal life. It's the only one that leads to the grand prize of your pilgrimage, fellowship with God who made you to find life, joy, and pleasure in him. Take heart then, loved ones, for Christ is with you to the very end of the age. Life does not end when you die to yourself. Instead, it's only when you die to yourself that life begins the life you always wished you had and it can only be found in following Christ forever. I pray that these reminders encourage you and your discipleship, loved ones. We're gonna pray, we're gonna sing a final song and I'll give a final communion warning um, as we take the Lord's Supper tonight. So join me, loved ones, in prayer.